Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Kevin Munger, author of Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics, out now from Columbia University Press. Kevin's book examines what he calls the boomer ballast, a large aging population that remains entrenched in the seats of power. And we discuss how the concept of generations has changed throughout history and how societal changes have led to unprecedented demographic patterns. But the big questions, of course, are about the future. Note, part of Dan's recording was lost, so there's a text-to-speech stand-in for the first half. Don't worry, he's still alive and very human, and we'll prove it to you later in the episode. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Caroline Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guest is Kevin Munger. Let's get into it. discussion we've been wanting to have for many years. I think we even at one point wrote to uh, Doug Coupland saying, would you please come on and speak about generations? And he's like, hell no. But anyway, we're very lucky to be joined today by like the perfect person to speak about generations, Kevin Munger, who just published a book with Columbia University Press called Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. So there's a lot in this. And I guess first, just hello, Kevin. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? With that introduction, I'm a little nervous to talk about generation stuff. <laughs> Could you introduce yourself? You're an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. But how would you like to present yourself? Uh, yeah, so I'm a political scientist who studies social media and how it is changing political communication. So This book is built around this generational conflict, something that I think a lot of us have been intuiting for, you know, some years now. I mean, at least 10, I would say. But when you're explaining what you do to your family, when you're with your parents or you're visiting a boomer uncle or aunt, how how do you frame it to a boomer? What is the way that you speak about the thesis of this book to somebody not of our generation, which is loosely millennial? Well, if you tell the boomers that it's a book about boomers, they love it. (laughs) So I think the thesis is essentially that the baby boomer generation is historically unique in the United States, as a caveat, and that I'm trying to understand why that came to be and how that affects our politics today. Fair enough. And do they usually have any follow-up questions? Like, are they afraid you're going, they're going to be indicted as, you know, the ones who have brought upon us economic inequity, global warming, et cetera? Like, how do you temper that? This definitely depends on the boomer. There's definitely a sense of animosity towards millennials. And I think historically, look at the data, the fact that they were so powerful in terms of the kind of stories that were getting written in the mid-2010s that caused the animosity towards millennials to become a topic, which then ultimately generated a sense of generational consciousness among millennials and produced the boomer backlash that we've been seeing playing out over the past few years. That's interesting because I was doing some Googling like New York Times, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, General Google, and it's true that 
articles that include both the words boomer and millennial don't really start appearing until after, say, 2008. They called millennials Gen Y, Echo Boomers. There were all these other names. But millennial versus boomer became a thing, really, I think, maybe around the financial crisis or thereafter, in the years thereafter. But maybe as a framing question, there have been a million op-eds written on this generational conflict. What compelled you to be the guy who would actually pen the scientifically accredited book of record on this boomer millennial gap? Like what made you say, oh yeah, I'm going to take up that totally messy sprawling topic? So it is immediately obvious to millennials like myself in academia at the lower rungs at this point, how stark the generational divide is. So it informs our experience working within these major institutions to a undeniable extent. And then as someone who studies social media, digital media, it was clearly a topic that people cared about and which resonated with them in how they experienced the world. The fact that it is usually trivialized, like making jokes about avocado toast or whatever, distracting from the fact that the difference between the different generations in the U.S. today is larger than it ever has been before, and that this affects how our politics works, how the economy works, and how our culture works. I mean, I wonder if you could tell us an anecdote of something that happened in your personal experience, your personal career in academia, where that generational divide was really stark. The standard story is simply not understanding how bad the job market for academics has gotten. So... yeah. This is due to two different factors. One is that the people who are now at the end of their careers, the boomers who came of age during the 50s and 60s and then got faculty jobs in the late 60s, early 70s, they entered these positions during the golden age of American higher education, when the demographic forces of more and more people turning 18 and going to college because of our economic prosperity meant that demand for faculty was growing at an incredible rate. And so it was actually very easy for many of them to get academic jobs. That is so dramatically not the case anymore that it's almost as if we're existing in different worlds. In Germany, there is a hard cutoff. I think it's 65 where you can no longer teach. But that same structure doesn't exist in the U.S. And in fact, maybe this could even segue into another framing question, which is when you're speaking of the boomer versus millennial divide, are you speaking specifically about the American context? Does it really extend, how far does it extend to the situation in European institutions, let alone say BRIC nations? I think it's very different. I think that the factors that produce these generations are different in these different countries. And so there's no reason to expect them to have similar experiences. My story is distinctly American story. Yeah, that's fair. Hi, it's Dan. I lost my recording, so I got a new voice. Anyways, can you give us some background or history on the concept of generations? How did the concept first emerge? So it starts with the founders of positivism, August Comte, in the mid-19th century. He thought that generations and the speed of generational replacements was what determined the progress of a human society or civilization. Hmm. The idea that older generations become less dynamic and it's only younger generations pushing things forward that costs progress. So the idea of generations correlates with the rise of industrialization? Exactly right. So the, the, it's, it's Karl Mannheim, a sociologist who wrote a very influential essay called The Problem of Generations in the early 20th century, I think 1906 who started a lot of the research on this topic. And it is precisely this rate of change, which does come from industrialization. And he was focused at the time as generations coming about when people share a location. 
And what relationship does that have to say like a Darwin framework of like origin of the species, which is I think 1859, there must be some convergence of thought there, a change in the way they think of human society. Yeah, more broadly, I think the idea of time is different. So we go from a pre-industrial, mostly cyclical conception of time where generations are going in a circle and we're doing the same things and that's how society works to a linear conception of time, of progress, of things being different now than they were in the past. How does a generational contract then change given that change in geometry of, of the evolution of generations? To give context, when we think about boomers and their relationship to their parents, nominally in the U.S., the greatest generation, they make good on the generational contract in the sense that we fought World War II for your prosperity. They then achieve that prosperity. But millennials have not been able to make good on that intergenerational contract in the sense that we had privileged upbringings in comparison to previous generations, but have not been able to produce the same upward mobility progress of a generation that had been experienced previously. So on this problem in particular, the U.S. is unique. The ideology of the U.S., broadly speaking, is progress. There's nothing else. Like There's no mm-hmm. traditions. There's no longstanding sense of who we are as a people except the idea of progress. The intergenerational contract you describe, I think it's useful to think about the two different ideas of a generation. One is the one we're talking about. The other is within a household. Mm-hmm. So not the broad group of people who are parents and children, but the specific relations between parents and children. And so the boomers are distinct on this dimension. Previously, the family had been a more dominant force, but the amount of prosperity and freedom that the boomers had was unique as people relating to their parents and instead using their newfound freedom to create new identities, which broke that micro foundation of generational. Yeah. What role do you feel new media played? in building the generational consciousness of the boomers. Was it new media that encouraged boomers to identify more strongly with their age cohort than their own families? Yeah, so I think that media technology is a large part of this, that thinking about large groups of actors and and having everyone able to conceive of them and see them acting in the world is downstream of media technology. And now, of course, social media is is changing things um, dramatically. So I think the same freedom explosion that the boomers had is happening with Gen Z. They're the first generation which is largely consuming media for, by, and about themselves, right? And so if the mass media was responsible for transmitting intergenerational values, norms during the 20th century, the fact that Gen Z is able to be consuming media for hours a day and have no contact with older generations through that media is changing this contract even further. That's super interesting. I mean, I don't know if generations also like come into contact with each other through a shared place and Gen Z, the like place comes to them, right? So they're just kind of have almost their own augmented reality layer of society in which to just start from scratch and develop things. I mean, that's probably also why ideologies, you get so much weird shit, right? It's not like this is trickling down from like uh, an older person who's been a, a gay luxury space communist for 40 years, right? Like they're kind of building it themselves out of like found texts and media and things they're putting together. I mean, but to quote your book directly, you say that, you know, many of the, well, this is me paraphrasing, many of the concerns about millennials and digital media echo the same concerns directed towards boomers. So the quote from your book is, rather than participating in culture and physical spaces that encourage the construction of social ties, people could participate in culture from their living rooms. That's about boomers. 
not about millennials. And so that's a very, in its structure, very similar in the sense that there's like an isolation, a, a kind of AR layer that they're existing within where they're watching media about themselves, right? But yeah. sorry, sorry, that was just to fill out your question. But TV is also like a cool medium, right? Not as a, hot, to a medium. hot medium. Let's go McLuhan. Yeah, I, mean, I love McLuhan. I've never, I've never quite bought that distinction. The way in which I think uh, TV is different from social media is who's creating right. it, right? So if I'm a teenager and I'm learning about the world, it's older generations making that right. media. And as you said, Zoomers are able to do it while walking around. It is much more augmented reality in the sense of they are every like in in high schools or, or middle schools, they have their own AR layer, which is the authorities have mostly given up on trying to control. And so the fact of them being in the same space as older generations doesn't mean they have to pay attention to them. Although, could an argument be made that it's millennials, largely, who have made the media containers that they're using, you know, are directing the flows of their attention. Zoomers are using technology where the UX and UI has largely been built by millennials. Yeah, I think that is a good point. We are the ones who've made the containers. And Web2 platforms they're using are not irrelevant to the kind of content they're producing. Is it the opposite, in fact? So even if we're not actually creating the specific content they're consuming, we are determining what kind of content can be produced and consumed, which is, of course, responsible for the content that they consume. I mean, arguably, Zoomers will define themselves when they figure out the way to subvert that container, right? That's just like maybe Occupy, <laughs> I had to say it, um, was the moment where millennials figured out how to subvert the media machine. They you understood how to manipulate it. Um, separately, I wanted to ask you, do you have any sense of how anomalous generational size has shaped culture in other parts of the world? For instance, in China over the past four decades. Right. So base demography is also important, right? So like the fact that there just are a bunch of boomers is a big part mm. of the story we're telling. And in China in particular, the shape of their age pyramid is historically unique, right? So I, I don't actually know that much about Chinese culture that's downstream of this, but I am sure that the decades of one child policy is creating important generational divisions that I, I'm not sure what they are. I mean, are there general patterns that sort of reappear with a age pyramid versus an age pillar? Mm. Right. Because usually there's this I mean, the, the life expectancy of the United States, average life expectancy in 1900 was 46 years. Mm. And now it's 76 years like I mean, generations, they didn't even have that much overlap, right? right? Like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. people died at 46 yeah. on average. Yeah. And now people just live so much longer that you don't have this asymmetry of younger people. It's like all, every age group has like, an right. equal number of people. And that must lead to very different well, dynamics. Per Kevin's book, I mean, this is precisely the reason why we have this boomer ballast in politics and in culture. Your book is filled with amazing graphs. So can you speak to how this pyramid, as Julianne's saying, what effect is that having? You pointed to it a little bit in terms of academia. Right. So it's genuinely novel that there are this many older people. And trying to figure out what that does to everything else is the purpose of the book. It's very difficult to disentangle the effect of people being old versus young and people being boomer versus millennial. Mm. So we can't really be sure how much of it is generation, how much of it is age. But if we look at the age composition of members of Congress, we actually have data on that that goes back 200 years. And it's never been the case that there have been this many old people 
in the House and the Senate. And there also has never been this many people for so long. Mm -hmm. The multiplicative effect of a lot of boomers being born and then these longevity extensions is what's creating this novel large number of older people who are still at the top of the inflexible institutions. That is institutions where it's against the law to start a new one of it, right? So you can't have a new doctor's association or a new entirely separate academia or a new Congress. But I guess you can have a totally new kind of bank, which is what crypto has been. Um, Maybe you can speak a bit to some of the chokeholds, like where are the boomers commanding control of millennial access? And how did Gen X factor into this? Like, how did they slip through this unthwarted? Uh, They didn't want any part of this. I think they opted out. And I think, I mean, I love to just make jokes about them. But choke points, housing is the most obvious one for many millennials. And just people living a long time and owning houses and occupying the locations in major cities is a very clear one-to-one story. Increasingly, although this seems like a local issue, it is unifying, it seems like across many countries that housing is a major concern. In that A, they can't afford it, and B, there's in urban centers, it's both unaffordable and also sometimes just not available. At any price, exactly. Uh, Because the people are still around, they're not retiring, and why would they? Yeah. Yeah, one other part of the story, the narrative of progress, which is so central to modern society, and the U.S. in particular, I think, leaves very little space for older people. If you are no longer able to contribute economically or to the dynamic progress of society, uh, we basically don't care about you at all. And we would prefer that you just go away. And so I think that alienation and a culture which does not value the elderly for their accumulated wisdom or for anything really is causing them deeply alienated, nihilistic and bitter. Yeah, for sure. I mean, productivity has always been part of the social contract, but usually after you got to your, I guess, probably like age 40, if life expectancy was 45 or something, it was okay if you didn't partake in the harvest to the same degree you did in previous years. Um, And if you were a child, you were working, you know, by age 10 anyway. Uh, So, you know, early retirement was relative. But now that lives have expanded, what do we do with that productivity demand? And in a way, it means there needs to be this cultural change. Their role needs to change so that we can value them because we don't, I mean, maybe some people don't have great relationships with their families, but generally speaking, it's a good idea to like keep people in your family in your life. There is like a nice like generational transmission of knowledge. So there needs to be some reinvention of like either what that value is or yeah, take the productivity factor away from value in terms of like what lives deserve to remain, which I think our generation millennials did. I keep on trying to find it in my notes, but I took the quotes from the Wall Street Journal from like 2008 where there were these... um, I guess there was a spate of, I'm sure you know this, Kevin, from your research, but there was like a spate of graduation speeches by boomers in 2009, so just in the wake of the economic crisis, Mm -hmm. where they were apologizing to graduating classes, being like, we're so sorry that we've given you this economic, this is our fault, like we built the housing loan crisis, like this is our fault. And then of course, in the Wall Street Journal, they were like, this boomer has nothing to be sorry for. I put my children through like private school, soccer camp. I gave you guys college educations. Like the only thing I'm sorry for is the fact that you don't know anything except privilege. You expect privilege and the expectation that there will always be upward mobility. And actually, Kevin, how do you deal with that question where boomers did give 
millennials like the best first start they could imagine by certain metrics. Yeah, I mean, this, this is this is the founding goal of the American dream. Literally, is to work really hard and then be better off than your parents and leave the world in a better place for your kids. And the boomers were able to do this to a ridiculous percentage, like the actual percentage of people who were better off than their parents among those, specifically people born between like 1940 and 1955, 90% of people were wealthier than their parents. Wow. Um, and so they did what they were supposed to do. They played by the rules and the system rewarded them. And so they trust that things work. And what we're trying to tell them now is the world is different and we are telling you this. And that's a very bitter pill to swallow. Of course, there's been a very performative street presence, whether it was Occupy or Klima Strike for Culture. But at this point, how much of the boomer condition is something that we want to pin on their spirit and how much of it is, um, like if you look back to the 70s and you look at the whole earth catalog and you look at what their aspirations were during this time, they wanted a more democratic, horizontal, a more like, uh, they, that was their stated aspiration in the 60s and the early 70s. Of course, that set forth like a neoliberal framework, but at what point did that start to no longer work? Like, where was the asymptote? Was it like late 80s stock? Where is the turning point? Because it started as a goodness narrative. Yeah, so the question, how much to assign agency yeah. to the boomers versus the larger structural factors is a good one. Um, I think largely it is about these long-term like demography and economic factors. Like the U.S. was so economically successful and had such broad-based economic growth post World War II because the rest of the world's factories were blown up. So of course, factory labor in the U.S. was more valuable, and so that meant that the middle class was able to grow at an unprecedented rate. That's just what happened, and the boomers were able to benefit from that. And then this growth of the California dream. But I do think part of why you get the hippie to yuppie pipeline is precisely just that the situation was so good, that there was the possibility for even boomers who had been rebellious and, and not played within the rules for the first decade of their life to then settle down, get good jobs, and then become part of the major institutions. And that narrative is so different from millennials and Gen Z, people who feel like they have to do everything perfectly for decades if they want to have any chance at reaching some kind of stability or institutional power. I wonder something about stories of generations, like narratives mm. or An identity heroes formation. that kind of shape their view of the future. Is there a defining sort of narrative for Gen Z. Yeah, so like the, the boomers had access to a long-standing idea of the American dream, and that was clearly what sustained them, and it largely worked out. And I guess the idea of a master narrative uh, as a motivating force in society has changed in the intervening 60 years. There clearly is not one for Gen Z of what their life should be like. They do retain, I think, this conception of self-fashioning, self-actualization as their goal. That is intrinsically not something that is subject to universal narratives the way that the American dream was. Hmm. I mean, there's a question in here about generational identity superseding any other kind of... Can I ask this question? Yeah about generational identity superseding any other kind of population cohort identity in the United States. And my suspicion, and this I think is backed up by your book, is that for boomers, um, particularly upwardly mobile white boomers, their generational awareness and their generational affiliation was stronger than saying I'm American or I'm white. Like 
they wouldn't want to necessarily use either of those. Um, same is probably true for millennials in a time where it would be very weird to be like identifying as white as your primary yeah. cohort. There's sort of a way of using your millennial identity as a proxy, given that that standard definition of millennial is usually tied to like a white middle-class, upwardly mobile American identity. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a bit about the slippage there or the way that generations Am I right in thinking that? Because because if you're an immigrant um, to the country or if you're black, you're probably having a different experience than the one that's been codified oh, in yeah. pop culture as, uh, but maybe you can speak to this because you speak about it in your book at length. I, I think it's important to point out that the boomers were the most homogenous generation, that they were the whitest generation in history. If you think about how previous waves of Italian or Irish or Jewish immigrants were not considered white, and then the restriction on immigration that comes in the early 20th century means that a lower percentage of Americans were foreign-born during the boomers' adolescence than at any other point in the 20th century. So the boomers were very unique in this dimension. And then the rate at which society has become more racially diverse is also sort of unprecedented. So they really have lived to see the world in which they grew up, which was unusually white for America, become diverse. And that has clearly changed their experience of politics mm. and, and immigration and these kind of issues. And then for millennials, how does that track? People who self-identify as millennials. Right. So it really showed up for Gen Z in the survey I did. White Gen Z people were the most likely to adopt their definitional generational label of any group, mm. including the boomers. Which is interesting because Gen Z is the most diverse also of all generations alive right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it is more of a, uh, just sort of a semantic choice or a choice of convenience in the way that like identity labels operate or are necessary in social I media. Think it's or, still hegemonic. Like right. if your white culture is still hegemonic and therefore by saying Gen Z, you're like distinguishing it's still, yourself in some way. You're from, distinguishing yourself in some way. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, of course, we're like, uh, we do this every time. We're just like, so, like, what does Gen Z eat for breakfast? <laughs> like, it's not, I mean, this is, it's all generalizations. But I wonder if you think that this time of very different generations all being alive at the same time, that, well, it's probably never happened before because their life expectancies weren't long enough. But maybe this is a unique transition moment. And once everyone born is born with the internet, generational differences will stop being so defined because everyone is immersed in this media. That's an interesting idea. I think it depends on if the internet technology continues to change or not. Right. So I see younger people really strongly identifying with like micro generations of like kids born between 2008 and 2010 remember these cartoons or remember using this now defunct social media platform. Right. And so if there's more of that, where the specific little micro generations are dividing themselves up further and further, the idea of like a 15 year age bracket as a useful is unlikely. This actually goes all the way back to Auguste Comte, the founder of positivism, which is about the acceleration and the rate of change in society. Generations are more salient in periods of rapid change, right? So the human lifespan has extended quite a bit. It, we're probably not going to see that much growth again anytime soon, uh, at least not except among the mega rich. And so we might just have crossed the point where the human lifespan and technological acceleration, we're just not going to be able to make sense of each other based on 
the technology that existed and the media that existed when we were developing, we have nothing in common, neurologically, socially, culturally. And if technology continues to accelerate as it has been, that is a likely outcome. But isn't that assuming that we just won't have IRL interactions? I mean, I know the neural implant would mean we'd have IRL interactions and also be fully wired or no, the Zoomer walking the out with the phone. Is, uh, I mean, what? The difference between IRL interactions and being in a physical place is that you cannot curate it to your own liking. Right, right. It's the randomness. It's those surprises. It's like the 2006 movie Crash. <laughs> Any real city, you walk, you brush past people, people bump into you. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true that you already see these like striations now of augmented reality layers that people exist in that are like virtual populations, virtual identity yeah. groups, right? It's like the way that I, I think of um, how really rich people like fly private and like no one even checks Sky their passports, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah. like you can also imagine certain Gen Z kids like they're like literally living in another virtual strata but again, you're of talking the world. about people who are not having children. I really think the mm. moment that you involve one generation dependent on the other. So as soon as you have children, you're dependent on like a network of people to help you care for those children. And I think increasingly, although Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, this will be something that older generations will help out with. And maybe there'll even be tax credits or it will somehow be institutionalized. Mm. And so I think there'll be an intergenerational necessity where you'll have the children and the working generation and the older still capable wanting social interaction. I mean, I imagine there will be a new kind of generational Family. I mean, or because yeah, I'm speaking. That's a good startup, though. Elite Babysitters Club. Yeah, right. We're just like, mother, like, grandmothers. It's very important to have a very elite babysitter to give your your child intergenerational exposure. Yeah, so, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, that's everyone with a master's degree and all these useless like liberal <laughs> arts degrees. They can actually become like premium babysitters. That's true. That will be their skill. That will be their skill set. But even, I mean, I was just thinking about how like my mother, born in 1948, that like. Her year of birth is closer to the 19th century than the present, right? And I was thinking about how my year of birth in 1978, I'm technically Gen X, but I've said it many times in this cast, (laughs) but is closer to like the pre-World War period than it is to today. That's crazy. Like I'm closer to Weimar period, well, late. Then I guess 1930s than I am uh, too. Yeah. Right. So so there will be there will be like a super value potentially to being able to, ha- to expose your five year old to somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. Right. That's like a valuable thing. Right. I mean, at the same time, as we noticed when we went to some concerts recently, or we watched an old movie too. Yeah. But the big chill, good watched, boomer nostalgia right, movie, which is about yeah, boomer nostalgia movie. But you look at the difference in styles, music, like. Everything between, say, um, 1970 and 1982, and it's like a crazy, change. yeah, a massive right. Change. And you look at the difference between 2010 and 2022, and it's, it's kind really kind of the same. Well, yeah, that's a, maybe sorry, displacing my other previous intermediary question as we stream of consciousness talk. Um, Like, did you notice that in your research? Like, if you look at the difference between 1968 and 1980, it's really massive. Ditto 1960 and 1970, massive. But if you look at the style difference between 2001 and 2022, it's like- 2010, let's not be crazy. But seriously, even in the early- 
aughts, it was a pretty similar style pack as it is today. No, I think it changes like around like sea punk witch house, like yeah, all that's it was true. around that was the Tumblr, like internet niche genres era, like that influence has not gone away. It was like some accidental fashion asymptote has been hit <laughs> and you've just seen the same looks like since. It's kind of weird. But yeah, retro cycles and generations, Kevin, is that show up at all for you? So most of my analysis is of political things and it's a bit harder to disentangle, but I think that this is entirely consistent with the fact that that period that you're describing was when the boomers were young. Right. So many young people and that they had unprecedented economic freedom is what produced this fecundity of new styles. And the fact now that we are a society dominated by the old is, I think, partially responsible for a lack of dynamism in the cultural sector among the young. Right. But I mean, what's going to happen when the boomer generation falls out of influence? So the, the timing of this is important. Everyone is right that there is demographic inevitability, but I think they're wrong about when it's going to happen. Next year is the year that the most people turn 65 in the history of America. And so, wow. yeah, so never before or ever again will as many people turn 65. And because of the longevity, the life expectancy might be 76, but the conditional life expectancy on reaching 65 is like 80, 85. So these people can expect uh, to live another 15, 20 years. And they have quite a bit of money saved up. Many of them own houses. And older people always participate more in politics, but this difference is exacerbated by boomer ballast and their socialization advantage. And so the fact that they're going to spend all of their time consuming media and getting mad about it and then... <laughs> participating in politics however they can, is, I think, only going to increase the force of the boomer generation over the next decade. Mm. And so the key question is, in which sectors can the young create alternative institutions and ecosystems right. that they can start doing new stuff outside of the institutions that are dominated by the boomers? I mean, Dan, you've thought a lot about this, being particularly involved in crypto as a leading Case. My voice, it's changing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a very obvious place where there's an open field to create new institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's obviously being tested a lot. Although I do think the end result of all of this chaos here is going to be a focus on the true new institutional building aspects of Web3 and less Ponzi's, mm -hmm. you know, because obviously those mm -hmm. are all collapsing. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I think attached to like the Web3 stuff, there are, I'm not particularly. Uh, convinced by the people who are doing this, but there are a lot of attempts at creating, you know, literally new cities, new countries, new um, platforms in the ocean. Um, <laughs> and those people tend to not be boomers. There's an opportunity that you have to spend time in extreme frontiers to make a name for yourself these days, in addition to there being a huge risk. So, I, yeah, I see it as potentially a positive thing. I mean, yeah. in some ways, it's always the case though, right? I mean, like the realm of Microsoft, Apple, Netscape, et cetera, that was a new frontier and that was the name to make for yourself in the 80s and 90s, right? And if we go further back, of course, it's like go west, young man, like literal new frontiers. So it seems kind of this narrative of progress continues actually. And it's more about imagining new kinds of frontiers to wander into. Um, I mean, I think people, yeah, people do forget how newfangled and and risky um, stuff like Microsoft and Apple seemed at the time. Like there were there were certain states where you weren't allowed to buy Apple stock. I think like yeah. uh, Connecticut, you weren't allowed to buy Apple stock because it was considered really? too what? speculative Whoa. and risky at the IPO. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a ton of precedent for the stuff that's going on right now as far as being scared of the new. When cars first 
started becoming commercially available, suddenly there was like this rash of bank robberies because <laughs> never before could you like pull right. up in your car, run in a <laughs> bank, stick them up and then take the money and speed off. Like, <laughs> so it's like, you know, there was even, even with cars, there was like major scamming and like right. bad and stuff going on. A form of acceleration in one sector. Yes. It's used to like... So you could totally imagine this kind of, you know, situation being like, oh, cars are just going to make robberies like explode. Right. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it did happen, but then there's like the issue is just like linear projections about things like that. Right. right? Yeah. But it seems like a classic voice versus exit question where like because of boomer ballots, because of boomer ballast, there's not the option for boy. Because of boom oh my god. Because of boomer <laughs> yes. ballast, there's not the option for voice. Therefore, the only option is exit, right? Yeah. This is why I, when people that are ostensibly in favor of progress are so reflexively against these types of exit movements, I'm just sort of like, what how can you not see that the need for other types of financial institutions, right. other types of institutions? Um, it just seems the millennials that are still so uh, convinced by all those stuff, I, I just like don't even know what's going on in their heads, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think I like to explain this with the the phrase boomer realism. So <laughs> right. uh, the fact that the 19th century feels so radically different, and yet the world that we grew up in in the U.S. has been largely the same from our perspective for a long time. We thought we knew yeah. how the world worked. These institutions are permanent. The West Wing is how politics works and always will. And that has changed so radically in our lifetimes that many people can't come to grips with this. And I think that clearly the boomers themselves are never going to fully internalize how radically the world has changed. But a lot of millennials also assume that the institutions that we've inherited will continue to be the ones that control society and like structure society. And I think that that's just not the case. And like a longer historical perspective suggests that a larger variety of options are out there if someone will actually go out and build them. Yeah. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine is an, is an absolute tragedy and really horrifying to watch. But I think there is like an interesting corollary there in that all of the, you know, I mean, whatever. It's like the Fukuyama end of history. The fact that that is so obviously being undone in various places globally does seem to be opening a portal for what then is possible. Like clearly these institutions aren't working or aren't seemingly strong enough to hold the world order in any place. So maybe there is a kind of opening there. I mean, I don't know how to correlate this. I'm not trying to say that I think it's good that Russia invaded Ukraine. I think that's horrifying. But um, the, fa the fact that like those status quos are totally being renegotiated, say the idea of reliance on Russian fuel, for instance, or different international contracts does very much affirm the fact that all these institutions have to be reconsidered. Joker Carly take. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's clearly right, though. Like, no one thought that there could be a land war in Europe. And here we are, right? right. So, I wonder do millennials have a generational consciousness problem? I mean, looking at the political touchstones that they focus on, I mean, you know, I guess, yeah, there was Occupy, but that, that wasn't like the Vietnam War protest or something, right? <laughs> but I, I mean, I, looking at... It was like, for some of us. It was for some of us. But, I don't know, looking at boomers and, and uh, looking at Gen X and looking at Gen Z, 
something about millennials sticks out to me as not quite having a sense of solidarity with other people in their generation. They seem a little more crabs in a bucket. Oh yeah. Did you notice anything like that or am I hallucinating? I, that, that tracks, I think that the boomers, it's easy to have a sense of solidarity if everyone's doing well and <laughs> the material conditions are there, but it's very clear that the intergenerational inequality among millennials and the sense of like, do you get an office job and are you able to live on this track or not is so radically different in, in many, many ways. And I think that that is preventing any sense of actual generational solidarity and we get kind of superficial identity-based cultural things instead. That makes total sense. Yeah, I guess it is just that transition period of like, I mean, I guess Gen Z, their entire generation is somewhat equally fucked. Their <laughs> expectations were never high and then yes. dashed by 9-11 Iraq and the financial crisis. It's just always been financial bad, crisis and yeah, bad right, right. They didn't stuff, have that right? Disney World era. So yeah, I guess that, that does perfection. make sense. So um, a lot of our friends are starting to have children now in their late 30s and early 40s, which is exciting. And so we have this theory though of Zoomer boomers where Julian... Well, I think that Zoomers are going to have kids and start families more than millennials did. But the weird thing is, is that Zoomers and millennials are going to start having children at the same time. <laughs> and then you're going to have this new baby boom of the children of the both. millennials yeah. and the Zoomers <laughs> who both kind of decided to have kids around the same time for whatever reason. One will be reason. IVF and one yeah, will be natural. Exactly. I, it just exactly. seems it doesn't. It feels like that can't possibly, it, it has to be similar size as the trad calf thing. Like, yes, right. there are trad zoomers, okay. but the actual trend is fertility is lower, sperm counts are lower. Yeah. Like, it's harder than ever to have a kid. It's not going to be easier for them to have a house. I mean, I don't see how the mechanism for, mm. for zoomers to start having kids. I mean, it's hopeful, kind of. Kevin, thoughts? Yeah, it's. Part of the issue here is that extrapolating from our experiences to larger generational trends is becoming less and less plausible. Immigration has gone down quite a bit since Trump, and, but if that goes up again, that'll be a much bigger impact on the macro scale of who's getting born when um, and to mm -hmm. what age adults. It's kind of like the dwindling of the white generational cohort. That whole phenomenon is receding. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, getting into some... Well, uh, great, repla great replacement territory there. But, I don't mean it that um, way. I just mean like the idea of generations is tied to a social structure that's receding. Yeah, the fact is like the great replacement is a demographic reality. It's just like whether or not you're mourning it as some horrible yeah. tragedy or just like a shift in demographics. Right, right, that's, right. I think the deciding factor there. But yeah, if you look at like, you know, college admissions yeah. rates for, for races, it's like whites are fully minority at this point. And obviously that's demographic changes and also, you know, deliberate admissions policies as well. But I definitely think, yeah, the, the end of the white cohort is real. It's yeah. a real phenomenon for sure. Yeah. These things have been predicted many, many years in advance. Like if we can sort of see this play out in slow motion over yeah. the course of decades. And yeah, like the emphasis on calling like the great replacement theory, a conspiracy theory is so odd because it's so obviously the demographics are changing. And it's yeah, not a conspiracy. Yeah. It's yeah. actually not a conspiracy. It's just happening for a variety of unrelated reasons. I, I do feel like very gaslit when <laughs> when it's just blanket dismissed as 
a racist fantasy. Well, there could be like, better language than I mean, the Great Replacement. I mean, that's not exactly the no, best. There could be a different way that's of framing semantic. it. Yeah, it's yeah, obviously. It is a semantic thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the thing yeah. is, is that the progressive media, again, it's it's just one of these things where they decide to deny reality for ideological right, reasons right. instead of making a better compassionate narrative yeah, that yeah, yeah. accepts yeah. reality. Yeah, that's the exactly. Issue. Exactly. And like, Absolutely right. If you're a rational person, then you can't accept being gaslit like that. Right. And it's going to. And the yeah, right owns rationality and they're going to leverage it for <laughs> right. uh, terrible things. Yeah. The thing I wanted to ask maybe as a closer, and this is a totally subjective question, but, you know, in the end, when the boomers are all gone, are we going to kind of miss them when it can be argued that like Gen Z and the younger generations are sort of totally subsumed by a form of media that entirely engulfs and envelops them and nudges them and creates a hive mind easily manipulated by forces who can operate at scale. Uh, do you think there's actually a bigger danger with the passing of a generation that isn't totally swimming in internet? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. The social institutions that provide real-world glue are still largely run by boomers, so they're, they're serving all of these functions and have all this tacit knowledge and all of these community relations. And the fact that the younger generations are increasingly atomized, mediatized, means that what little community structures we've inherited will be gone once the boomers leave. And so, yeah, the big question for me is for younger generations – are we going to build something else? Are we going to actually make a better world or are we going to continue to, you know, try to get the numbers to go up on the platforms, which is in fact the dominant response by far of what everyone is doing. All of the things that could be possible with the internet, and this is this is how we're doing it, is indeed a tragedy. I think in the long term for human flourishing, are we going to get our shit together is a big question. And in the short term for American politics, it's sort of once the two boomer establishments in the two parties lose power, who is going to step in? Who's actually going to be organized enough to take over one of the two parties? And then which party will it be? Ironically enough, the fact, and Trump showed this very well in 2016, the fact that the Republicans actually stand for nothing and are completely craven might mean that they are able to adapt more quickly to the changing reality of the next generations and that the Democratic establishment is somewhat more coherent and has a set of principles outdated that they may be. And that might make them even less adaptable and dynamic. And they might be ultimately outflanked by the Republicans. It's, it remains to be seen. Um, That's super interesting. I mean, yeah, the fact that the Democrats have this agenda and younger people are like not necessarily adding their two cents to that narrative. So it's going to be the losing party. Yeah, I mean, it played out the Democratic primary. The biggest point of generational conflict in American politics has been the Democratic primary in the past two years. And both times the establishment held on to power. Right. And I think they will reap what they sow. Man. And so will we. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, are there any myths that you want to dispel that uh, are there any like overarching myths about millennials that you want to voice? The best one, I think, is about entitlement. Mm. So this is part of the standard reactionary boomer critique. And I really just want to emphasize that in 1967, the Time Magazine Person of the Year Award went to the baby boomer generation, the entire generation. They were called the inheritors because they were inheriting this 
impossibly positive, economically successful and free environment, and they could do whatever they wanted with it. Yeah. I mean, I think though, I remember a mirror cover sometime around 2006 where the person of the year was you, which is also interesting in this idea of post seventies where you have a generation of eyes, not a generation of we's, which is like the worst thing, corniest way to put it. Oh, yeah. but, right. So a sense of entitlement is, is maybe just unfair. I do hope, I guess the question is, are we going to continue to spend our energies grinding ourselves to the bone in zero sum competition yeah. or towards some new cooperation, collectivity, and, and mm. building of community. Well, glad that you're within the ivory tower and also speaking outside of it. So at least there's one voice uh, raising these questions. Well, thank you, Kevin. Definitely check out Kevin's book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Columbia University Press comes in all the forms you need. And Kevin is also part of the New Models Discord and a few other dark forest spaces. We'll link him in the Discord chat. I, I appreciate y'all reading it and I've had a great time talking to you. Cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Well, thanks, Kevin. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Models, and thank you, Kevin Munger, for joining us. Kevin's book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics, is out now from Columbia University Press. Kevin is part of the New Models Discord, so lurk more and you will find him. Our New Models Berlin Biennale 12 tour was cut short after I crashed my bike and ended up a bloody mess, but we will check in with a few of the members who were there to get their takes on an upcoming episode. Hope you're staying cool, watch out for curbs that appear out of nowhere when passing at high speeds, and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. For Web3 access, visit channel.xyz. 